All right. Cheers. Cheers. This podcast is brought to you by uh, Miller Lite. <laughs> and uh, shout out to uh, Will Humphrey and Wendy Films for keeping the uh, beer fridge stocked here at the studio. Thank you, Will. Yeah. Will, you're here in, uh, in spirit through the suds that we're uh, enjoying. Sam, this has been a long time coming. I've been looking forward to to having you on on Boston Speaks Up. It's a bit of a um, you have a unique perspective in market in that you're coming at things from an investment and and advising and growth agent side, which yep. I think offers a lot of insights to the entrepreneurs in particular listening to Boston Speaks Up that are maybe building things and um, trying to become best suited to. Um, work with a group like progress. Sure. Um, and you also have a really unique background. So I want to, so I kind of want to step back for a second and, and kind of catch up to speed on how you found yourself in Boston. I mean, you grew up in Cambridge and we, and, and we can talk about that a little bit, but, um, yeah, like talk, talk a little bit about your childhood in Boston and like when in, and kind of what, what was it, um, about your childhood that kind of drove you to, to seek some experience out in the Pacific Northwest. Sure. Um, and what, and what that was like for you and how that started to kind of shape, um, the young man that, that, that you were. Sure. Sure. Um, yeah. So grew up in Cambridge, uh, just outside of Harvard square, I guess what shaped childhood. Uh, I, I, uh, found most of my time as much as I could up off the ground, climbing just about anything I can get my hands on, um, on top of a fence, on top of a roof, um, or, or on a bike. Um, so keeping my feet off the ground. So I, I think ultimately, while I didn't necessarily see it as risk-taking, I think any neighbor who spotted me up on the roof or um, anyone else walking by would see me as doing risky things. Um, but that kind of came uh, second nature, first nature, practically. Um, so, uh, a lot of time just, you know, as, as soon as I could get on a bike and ride it, I was running around with friends and riding around, rolling around the neighborhood. Um, and it was you young friends and then, um, folks in the generation of, uh, between 70 and 79 years old. Yeah. I can't even say the word. Septuagenarian. I didn't even know, it was, I didn't even know how it was spelled until I, uh, was, was putting my notes together. So we did, time. we did our, we did our pre-podcast interview with Sam, which it, maybe if you, if folks listening to this came through the, the Boston O story or read it. Um, but I still can't even say it again. How do you say the word? Septagenarian. Septagenarian. Septa, yeah. Which have, I, after looking up, I realize is, is people between the ages of 70 and 79. Yeah. And, yeah. and so you described your childhood as sort of like on bikes and skateboards, playing with friends, climbing yeah. things. Yeah. And with septagenarians. <laughs> well, so we basically had, we had, we had a, a good handful of families. So there are a lot of kids running around, but then if you weren't in a, there were no young like really young couples. It wasn't uh, for the unmarried or single people. It, it was all either people who are clearly, you know, aging later in life, those septuagenarians or, or the families. So as long as we didn't hit anybody, I think we were in, a, in good shape, you know, uh, in our, in our uh, riding around or, or setting up jumps and, and uh, whatnot. But yeah, we're we, going to make a prediction real quick. Yeah. That someone's going to win like a, a, 
trivia event in Boston with this word or maybe like, you know, a, a crossword puzzle or something. But in the future, I'm going to get an email and I'm going to forward it to you. I'm, I'm convinced it's, it's spelling bee. There's, yeah. It's going to be added in the spelling bee. Yeah. Yes. Someone's no going to win a spelling bee. Yeah. So you're welcome. In, in advance. Uh, so, so you have siblings growing up? I have a younger brother. Uh, and how much younger? Three and a half years. Okay. Three and a half years. Younger. And were you guys close? Like, was he out there climbing things, taking risks with he you? He was not as much of a risk taker as I was. Again, I look back on it realizing it was risky, but um, no, he, he was more grounded than I was uh, in a lot of ways, but um, he, he didn't necessarily adventure in the same ways that I did. Um, but that hasn't held him back at all. He's now living out in San Francisco and working at Pixar Animation. So, oh, cool. Um, yeah, he's in, he's in good shape. Um, helping fulfill Steve Jobs' legacy, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Something right. like that. Yeah. yeah, that's really cool. What a cool company. Yeah, um, yeah. So it was a lot of just whatever running around the neighborhood. It, 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 everywhere was on, on a bike or a skateboard, and um, I, I think that freedom um, was key. I mean, being able to explore a city and it, Boston was a different place at that time. Cambridge mm-hmm. was a different place. What year is we talking? Uh, this would be the late seventies into the early eighties, mm-hmm. and uh, you know they're. The city has changed a bunch. In a lot of ways, it's it's the same. I mean, you can't change the layout, but uh, uh, so there are a lot of familiar roads and places. But the the scenery has definitely changed, which is wild. You got to the question, sort of, of what what sort of drove me out to the Pacific Northwest, and I, I guess you know, being in the city of the town of city of Harvard, uh, you know, the the Northeast is packed with. Uh, this aspiration towards uh, elite schools. And for me, that wasn't as exciting. I think what was exciting to me was getting into those, you know, tight spaces and, you know, high rooftops and, and, uh, and fences. And I think that translated in early childhood to things like rock climbing and mountain biking and uh, pursuits of alternative sports, whitewater kayaking. Mm-hmm. And uh, so when it came to thinking about college, the idea of, of an elite school wasn't as important as to the more holistic experience that mm. came with, with a uh, college education and the, the social scene and, and then the extracurriculars. So, um, having looked at a bunch of different places in, you know, Vermont and Colorado, uh, happened to come across Oregon and, and, uh, was uh, sold immediately as soon as I, I saw it. And I did, I did a visit and was blown away. So continued my, my connection to the outdoors and, and uh, I guess you call it risk taking. Um, were there act- activities through the university, like officially, or you were just in an environment where you could do a lot of activities? Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah. I, they they had a whole outdoors program there. Funny enough, actually, I did most of it all on my own with buddies that okay. I had. That uh, you know, so everything from a season pass to Mount Hood Meadows to rock climbing at, at uh, Smith Rock wow. to uh, kayaking in, in any number of the different rivers, Rogue River. Uh, yeah, I mean it was it was out your back door. It was in your backyard, yeah. you know. And so we we just did a lot, uh, and and not to also diminish that the education that I got at Lewis and Clark College was phenomenal, um, and and really got to enjoy Portland as a city and the Pacific Northwest both. Um, but you have to be kind of a self starter to do that. So I think that sort of falls in line with you know someone who's willing at a high school age to look at uh, somewhere halfway across the world or whatever it is, you know, across the country, but, you know, yeah. out of, outside of your comfort zone. And I think that's, I guess, uh, something I've enjoyed doing is just getting outside of the comfort zone. 
That's cool. That, that begs the question. You, you probably met some like minds that similarly from whatever corner of America or maybe internationally they were growing up, they also sought out Oregon for similar reasons. So you mentioned you didn't even have to go through, like even though the school had some programs, like you just kind of, it was almost like your desire was a magnet to other people's desire to just go out and do things like some of those did you like i mean did you forge some like lifelong friendships like some of the folks you met at college then did those activities with have you stayed in touch with them like did you oh yeah yeah absolutely no i mean just this just this past spring with a college friend was up in interior bc nelson british columbia doing some cat skiing amazing which a place called bald face lodge which is a fantastic place you know, okay. for, for if you haven't heard of it or any no, listeners no. who've never heard of it, but check out Baldface Lodge. A guy named Jeff Pensiero, uh, and his whole entrepreneurial story is fascinating. Yeah. Um, he's done a couple podcasts on it, uh, Dirtbag Diaries. Okay. Um, it, it, it's, a, uh, it's a fascinating place and one of the most uh, amazing ski experiences that I've ever had. But yeah, with a college cool. friend, you know. So yeah, I think it's just like minds. You, you do. You you not you you levitate. I mean, I met my wife out there. Um, you definitely find that you have people with aligned mindsets um, at, at, when you move outside of your your comfort zone. Yeah, it's important to do at some point. My um, my brother, who's a writer out in LA, his the first book he wrote was. Um, it was about sort of this, the pursuit, you know, everyone's pursuit of their own sort of version of their, you know, their manifest destiny and how very much so, um, that physically, like literally means for us East coasters, just going West and how it has been for centuries now. Um, you know, for me, it was Southern California, it was Oregon, but, um, we end up back here too. Like yeah. it's a wonderful place to live, to raise children. Um, uh, but yeah, no, I can totally re- relate to that experience. And it's cool that you met your wife there. I sort of like had recently met and, and shared in a lot of experiences out West with my wife. And it's, it's kind of also, you know, it's nice that you and your wife have that like bond between you that so far extends, yeah. you know, 3000 plus miles from where yeah. you're raising your children now. So, you know, they'll take those similar risks, you know, risks and leaf, leaps of faith um, as they get older to go and experience yeah. Yeah. Uh, other worldviews and have themselves sort of, um, imp- you know, impress upon themselves all sorts of experiences as yeah. we hope for our children, right? Yeah. So yeah. that they're prepared for all sorts of things that life can throw at them. Um, what was it you studied in undergrad? I was an art major undergrad, uh, photography. Uh, I tried to do a dual major in, in art history and, and studio art, but they... Uh, they didn't have that set up at the time, so I had to choose between one or the other. And after a, a study abroad in Rome, um, landed on uh, doing my thesis in photography. Yeah, cool. Yeah, the photography stuck out to me. So that, I, and it was something new that I learned when I was like just doing like a little more investigation. We've become, you know, friends over the last few years and and cycled together a bunch. And yeah, we, we yeah. talk about that a little later, but. Um, at least the cycling parks. I know it's like a big part of like a, a driving force that kind of um, gives you structure and purpose and drive in life. Yeah, um, yeah. But yeah, like what was it about photography that like when you had that option, you're like, you so leaned into that as a major and, and kind of even to this day, um, is that still like a part of your life? Are there elements of that kind of creative 
photography side of you that you feel like manifests in in, sure. the, in the the man, the husband, the father you are today? I I, I think you know. Uh, I'll start from the beginning. You know, I my I grew up with a father as an architect and had had cameras around the house and in my life as long as I can remember. So the first opportunity I had to pick up that camera was an exciting way for me to see things and then memorialize them right Mm -hmm. in images. And I think over time you start to train your eye to see in composition, right? You understand the concept of the frame and where things play out. So fast forward ahead to the second half of your question. And I think, yeah, I I think I always see things through a a lens of composition, Mm -hmm. um, creatively, uh, composition and structure, I think, is a lot of actually what plays out in, in my career in business as well, funny enough. Um, and people take all sorts of different approaches to a business, right? There's the, the CEO from a marketing background. There's a CEO from a finance background. Sure. There, Everyone can come in from different yeah, angles. Mind product mind. engineer, CEO. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. So yeah. everyone can see success through different lenses uh, or, or approaches. Mine and, happens. And you, and you shift that aperture. Yeah, right. Yeah, uh, there you go. <laughs> um, but yeah, it it, uh, it started at an early age. And I mean, I was taking photos and um, doing photography in grade school, high school. So it was sort of a natural fit for me. I ended up actually doing just about every single possible discipline in college when it came to the art department, um, mm-hmm. sculpture, graphic mm-hmm. design, painting, drawing. Cool. Um and and I think just felt a comfort and and a pa- interest I think to punctuate what I was doing in photography with yeah. something significant. Yeah. So that that played itself out, and the reason why I chose photo- or studio art over art history, which I also have a great interest in, is that my travel abroad ended up having advanced classes in um, Byzantine and. Uh, ancient Christian architecture. You're in Rome. Yeah, Yeah. which it it makes sense. I I should have thought about it a little bit more. That's the college student who's not thinking ahead, but that's not necessarily where I wanted to write my thesis. And so for the year leading up to my senior year, I wasn't really preparing myself to to land, you know, with my uh, wheels turning uh, come senior year to to do a thesis in in art history. So that's that's where I ended up taking my camera to Rome and and taking incredible pictures that I I still have around me today that um, I think just locked in the point that I was going to do the the studio art and and photo major. uh, Thanks for sharing that. I kind of want to get to where you went from after school and and off of that major. But before we do, I want to double click on your parents. So you mentioned your dad. Yep. He was an architect. Yep. When we did our pre-podcast questionnaire, yep. you talked about sort of like this the strongest influence sure. on your life has been your mother. Yeah. What? What? You know, tell us more about that. Sure. I'm. Uh, so, I mean, my dad was a great influence, yeah. but you said strongest, and I think the 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 thing that um, backs that answer up is uh, she was um, she was a stay-at-home mom until. I was off into high school, and uh, that's not true. I was I was I was a latter half of grade school, but but on my way off to high school, she started taking her career seriously. But after having really raised both my brother and me, and um, getting us on our way, and then um, just three years ago, retired as being the executive vice president of investor relations for Colgate Palmolive. Wow! So so um, she took a, a a long break to raise you guys, yeah. and then like. Really didn't even have a professional career. Never did. She married my dad right out of college, um, graduated young, 
and um, had me young at the age of uh, 25. Mm-hmm. And then, um, but, but built up the family while my dad was the, uh, you know, single, single, uh, salary for the, for the family. And then, um, but pushed her, pushed her way into a professional career that included a degree, uh, like me from Babson, a uh, business degree, wow. uh, having then worked within various organizations, but, uh, ultimately, um, making that transition that is a big transition into a pretty, pretty wow. senior role. And, and I think, so when you talk yeah. about what has been a, your, your strongest influence, yeah. I think she's pointed out to me that one can go where you want to go. If you focus on that, if you sure. put the effort in and I, I didn't know where I was going coming out of college and but knowing that I just didn't want to do a career creatively. Right. So per your, per your sort of thoughts yeah. or questions of, so how do you make that transition from an art major into where I am now at, at progress? And I think a lot of that, you know, I had a, an example to guide me, a precedent that was set saying that, you, you know, it doesn't have to be in her exact shoes, but that one can make a change and, and guide yourself. That's a really, uh, thanks for sharing that story. It, it, it sort of can, compels me to, to bring up the, the, just the difference in generations and how incredibly unique it was for your mother and her generation to do that. Because generally speaking, like our parents, generation um it was easy generally speaking kind of could ride out like a career and a single focus and now fast forward to today and and the the young you know maybe young 20 somethings listen to this podcast and certainly you know our children and and if you know folks who are listening with children like i think there's stats out there that folks will need to reinvent themselves in their careers every like every six or seven years right um and so, and you can do that. And like, that's, um, and that's like a really sort of valuable lesson that your mother taught you yeah. um, that you'll pass down to your yeah. children, which yeah. is, yeah. which is great. So, so, um, from, from school in Oregon to going to Babson, yeah. what sort of happened in that period and what kind of then, you know, drove you yeah. back to get your business degree and kind of set you on this yeah. Then it shifted your trajectory. Yeah. I mean, I don't think there's anything particularly unusual about it in some ways in that if you go to a, a guidance counselor or you talk to someone about, you know, career counseling, they're going to try and determine like what you, what do you, what, what Which makes you tick. Which skill set suited for. Well, a little bit of what your skill yeah. set suited for, but also like what makes love you, what you do. Like what yeah. makes you tick? What, what, yeah. What's what going to get you, you excited? Yeah. What makes yeah. you passionate? Now, yeah. I didn't have that guidance going in, but uh again, I knew where I didn't want to go. And then I continued to sort of open up doors and see what else was out there. Right. And I realized in a early, my first role out of school that while I was doing design work and I could do the design work, what I really actually started to enjoy was interacting with the clients of the design firm, understanding and hearing their interests, their, their needs, and then actually playing more of a liaison between that, that client and our designers and becoming more of that relationship hmm. manager, right? Being the, the yeah. client to oh, yeah. to the designer relationship. And then that transformed into ultimately an internet startup where it was I was able to um, really push down the path of account management and, and, and co- uh, client success, cl- customer service. Um, tied into sales, tied into the selling process, but also tied into maintaining that relationship, right? Uh, account management is, is a slightly nuanced um, role compared to sales. And, uh, and I think you really have to sort of stand behind what you, what you promise, right. In sales, yeah. but and it's on account management to, to do that. Yeah. Um, so there's some problem solving in there. 
especially if, if, if your sales rep has sold something you don't even have, right? Right. Um, but that's where I found a, a real interest and uh, excitement for the business world and recognize that there's a lot of uh, gratification that comes from the work that I was doing there. Yeah. Um, but following on your question of sort of path to Babson, it was apparent to me as we blew up the internet world in, in 2000 and into 2001 company where I was, IGN Entertainment um, was buckling down. Uh, they didn't shut down. We laid off a lot of people, but I survived through all the rounds of layoffs and realized then that it was going into sort of hibernation mode until we moved through the recession. So looking back on it, I'm sure there was some great experiences I could have had there. But I also, at the time, looked around and recognized that anyone more senior than me in the business world, be it in media or anywhere else, agencies, um, advertising, brands, they all had MBAs. So I thought I had zero business undergrad. So that seems to be the logical path for me to, to get some upward mobility. Mm -hmm. And like I said, I probably could have seen through to that mobility, but I also, looking back on it now also, with what I got from Babson, I got so much more there than I ever could have grabbed from, yeah. the, from my career alone. So that's, that's what got me there. I, I, I looked around, applied, and, and um, happily jumped in. And I think they were sort of happy to re receive me uh, at that point as well. I mean, I, I got a, a warm welcome and, and a, uh, a fantastic couple of years. That's cool. So the, the internet start, the internet startup, it, was it pre IGN? I was at a design firm from 97 to 99 and then yeah. 99 to 2002, I was right. at IGN. Okay. Uh, when it, technically, it was called Snowball.com. Okay. Um, but IGN.com, or what is now called IGN Entertainment, which yeah. is now part of J2 Global, yeah. um, they went through several different owners, public, private, back and forth. But the key point being was that Snowball was an internet holding company, mm -hmm. kind of like a West Coast and a small version of what CMGI was doing here in the, in the East Coast. Mm -hmm. And uh, of their various media properties, IGN was the most successful. It was the original. They tacked on a bunch of other properties on there, powerstudents.com and chickclick.com, and um, <laughs> none of those really survived. Well, they yeah. sold off Power Students, and, uh, and then Chick Click was wound down. But uh, both fun properties, and for the, for the time, they were successful. They, we were selling yeah. the first banner ads online. Uh, we, were, we were setting the stage for what became digital advertising, uh, which was really exciting. And... Um, you know, I joined when there were roughly 80 people and we rocketed up to about 360 people. And then we pared back down to about 120 people. Wow. Um, you know, I had a team of 16 people reporting into me and then laid off every single one of them. Wow. Uh, and, uh, and then ultimately hired, uh, I, I replaced my position with two people that I brought on board, both of which stayed at IGN for quite some time, actually. So that was nice to see, but... That, that Interesting. Sent me off. I, I might get back to a, a, this a little later in questions about sort of like if you see any trends in market that are like analogous to any things you've seen over mm -hmm. the last couple of decades. Uh, but double clicking on like when you went to Babson, I imagine like when you allude to like they weren't they received you warmly and you got all these like like great benefits from it. Like one of the benefits I typically hear is just like the network and the, and the people and the, and the like you, minds, but what, for you, what MBA was, in general or Babson? Well, 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 I guess, I mean, let's plug Babson all you can here. You know, your <laughs> alma mater loves you. We'll give them a shout out and some tweets and in the, in, in the, the article and whatnot. But, um, 
But yeah, I guess, I mean, just for, you know, you're talking, we're talking to, you know, a group of young entrepreneurs, some of which may similarly have gone like, like very strong liberal arts educations and um, have found themselves in Boston working in, you know, in software's eating the world, blah, blah, blah. We all on this podcast kind of get the narrative of the world these days, but maybe you're just recently finding yourself like have this like, um, appetite, um, and interest, um, certainly opportunistically working in tech is, is, is of interest to many, but you're finding yourself very, um, infected with, uh, the desire to work for startups, but also, also, uh, humbly acknowledging that there's much more to learn. Yeah. Um, and business school is one of those pathways. Yep. Um, so like, yeah, so I guess speak to a little bit of like what, what you mean by like, what are the few of the layers that you got out of, like, out of Babson? Out, yeah. out of Babson. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's a unique place. Um, I, I don't have the, <laughs> the experience of going through six other MBA programs to give yeah. you the full comparison. Yeah. But what I will say, I think really resonated with me. And I think a lot of my classmates at Babson, um, we all came from different backgrounds. There wasn't, you know, we weren't a bunch of, finance undergrads who are then going to get their MBA. Okay. We weren't a bunch of marketing undergrads that got our, our marketing and communications yeah. undergrads that went to get our MBA. People were coming in from medicine, from, from finance, from, you know, the, 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 the startup world, from yeah. media, from anywhere you could possibly think of family, yeah. uh, family businesses, you name yeah. it. Right. I, I would have to say that it was from a, from a background standpoint, it was one of the more diverse student communities that I've ever been a part of. And, we all came together around this concept of entrepreneurial leadership, right? Yeah. And, and what does it mean to be an entrepreneur? But behind all that and, and where I found great value in it personally was that I didn't have the business acumen and they gave it to me big time, right? Yeah. And they had a program to where it was, maybe it's my learning style, maybe it's their teaching style, yeah. but it was, it was a very smooth transition for me to become much more educated in the realm of business, what it meant, how, sure. it, how it worked. And, um, you know, the lectures weren't lectures. They were, they were discussions, right? It was, it was an incredible classroom where you're sharing experiences amongst the room. We all had come in with four or five, six years worth of work experience. So they weren't people coming straight out of undergrad to go and get their business degree. There were people coming with real life reference. Shared that, knowledge. Yeah. yeah um, and so yeah. I think Babson does a great job of synthesizing that. Mm-hmm. The um, And so the uh, th- there was no uh, handicap for not having the business background. Or, or business undergrad class. I took, like I said, zero classes undergrad for this. So it, it was a wonderful environment to, to learn everything and, and not have any regrets whatsoever, right? You, there was value coming in with everything. My experience working in San Francisco at the startup and the craziness that we went through, it actually helped me realize I had my head on straight when things seemed the craziest mm-hmm. during the internet boom and, and then bust that, you know, I was making some decisions that seemed to line up well with the you know, practices with how they would teach it. Yeah. Yeah. If you yeah. Did, yeah. Yeah. Cool. So, so there were some reaffirmations for some things you sure. had done. Yep. And then there was plenty more that you learned to kind of have like to, you know, be able to confidently talk the talk and like understand how to communicate and, yep. and, and grow, um, as a professional, but 
um, grow whatever business you might be working on behalf of. Great. So, so what, so what happened after Babson? What, what year? Was well, it? I, so I, yeah. I did, I did an internship yeah. at Procter and Gamble, uh, while I was there. Um, really fun internship with their corporate design group. Um, it turned out I, I got, I got, um, I got solicited by one of the, the hiring manager while I was at Babson who saw my background in, in art major undergrad combined with business. And they said, we're creating this new corporate design group that's taking design th- thinking and applying that into the corporate culture. And this woman, Claudia Kochka, hmm. um, who any of your listeners could look her up. She, she's closely tied into the uh, IDEO crowd. I was and, just going to say, it sounds yeah. like IDEO. Yeah. It sounds like a product designer. Yeah, crowd. no. So, yeah. I mean, I, and I, it ended up actually opening my eyes, eyes up significantly to the realm of industrial design, which mm-hmm. I hadn't really appreciated as much as I grew up with architecture. Sure. The parallels, right? Um, but it, it, as much as I love that, I also realized it reaffirmed my, my uh, understanding that I was more of a startup person. I didn't want to be in a big corporate culture. Mm-hmm. I could have done something internally, uh, entrepreneurship. I, I, yeah. I convinced myself that it was a great term and and something that could be interesting for me. Yeah. But after taking the internship, I, I passed down the job offer, passed, passed over the job offer and, and uh, turned it down and, uh, and decided to go back into the, into the media world. So after Babson, I went, moved over to the Phoenix Media Communications Group, um, fellow Babson grad, speaking of network, right? Yeah. You know, Babson does have a great network. Um, I think a network is an important part. The classmates I had there, I think I still keep close in touch with. We're about to have our 20-year reunion, crazily enough. Come on. Um, and, uh, 20 or 15, whatever it is, 15, 15, 15, yeah, don't, don't date yourself too much. Yeah. But anyway, so big, big reunion year. And, uh, and a lot of us have been emailing back and forth about getting together, uh, in a couple of weeks. So it, nice. that, is, uh, you know, I think the part-time MBA thing and, and the online MBA and all these other different options are the right choice for some people, right? Yeah. You can't take two years away from your life and get an MBA. So I, I applaud all these schools trying to make it more accessible. Yeah. But I will say I have no regrets over the two-year program and the connections that you make during a two-year program are phenomenal. Yeah. So you do bring away a great network. It, it, it's it's an incredible group of, of reference, right? You can call on any of these classmates of yours and, and they can be a... Uh, a sounding board for any number of different decisions you're making in your career, your life. Um, so I, I, I think that was a fantastic um, part of that education. So I left, yeah, went into media, thanks, thankfully to a, through a connection through the alumni network, um, and worked at the Phoenix Media Communications Group. Um, actually, in, on the finance side, in the finance department, I realized through my MBA. I mean, I discovered in the business world what I liked. What I discovered through my MBA is that I actually thought finance and account, not accounting, but finance. And strategic finance is fascinating. Mm. And there are elements, as much as there are accounting rules and gap regulations and any number of different ways that that one needs to track one's business from a financial perspective, how you strategically run your business from a finance perspective involves a ton of creative thought and Mm. strategy that Mm. I think is an interesting parallel and has some touch points to the creative background. So So there's the creative design like yeah, an element, element yes. of design that yeah. comes into it, right? Yeah. So, uh, I mean, even just thinking about in the work, and no two are the same, 
right? No, I mean, no two businesses are the yeah, same. Yeah. No, no two models are the same. Yeah, you're Don't not going to create, sorry, but you're not going to create a design for a business and say, oh, I got the framework. I can go help 10 more businesses with the same framework. You have to go and, and look at all the variables yeah. involved yes. uniquely. You can start with the framework, but yeah. you, you, there's a lot more that goes into it. No right. question. And, and even when we, you know, going to where we are now with progress and the advisory work we do, when you start thinking about how you value your business, you have to think about comparables in the market. Why are you like com uh, company, company A? Why are you not like company C? Mm -hmm. All these understandings of how businesses work and what they do, how they compete, and then how you think about one company's growth rate, their valuation based off of a multiple of, of revenue or profitability is going to all factor into how you think about your own sure. business or how you how you sell your business. Yeah. So how you how do you sell the value of what you're creating? You need to have reference points in the marketplace. So again, strategic and corporate finance builds on a lot of that, right? And and I, I you know have an incredible appreciation these days for um, analysts out in the world uh, that are tracking any number of these public companies and the models that they build and the views that they take on the market. And they, they become so deeply ingrained in the, they know these businesses almost better than some of the management team of these yeah. public companies. But in a lot of ways, there takes a lot of times I've, I've heard this, that analysts of public companies will have such valuable takes. And this is where it sucks for the analysts that they can't monetize this, that their takes will help shift the directions of those companies. Completely. And, and, mo and, and, and this, I mean, it, when you actually say that out loud, it doesn't sound Sound like crazy, but think about that, people. Yeah, yeah. Like, so these points analysts, I mean, I'm sure they're doing all right, but they're literally re, they're publicly giving feedback and re and helping redesign and shift the north star of these made these big public businesses, and yeah. in some cases, billions of dollars of, yeah. of revenues come after an analyst provide some strong guidance, guidance on, on a business. So, yeah. 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 I'm with you on that entirely. Um, getting away a little bit from the, from the startup world that we're in now, but um, it is, it, sorry, I, just, I do have a great appreciation for that. And the, the, so Phoenix Media Communications Group realized I, I had a great fascination with um, finance, played it out there, worked with one of their, um, products that they had a, a, basically a financing product for the advertising side of the business. Um, helped to clean up that department, which was a little bit um, out of date, had some some bad debts and things that I needed to help clean up, worked under the CFO there. That CFO actually happens to be my business partner today, a guy named Rick Gallagher. And um, uh, But I, I ended up getting the itch and, and realizing there was opportunity for me to do something uh, on my own. And, and ever since I'd left Babson had an itch to do my own thing, but wanted yeah. to get my feet under me after, after the degree and, and got that through the Phoenix media communications group. And then said, okay, it's time to go launch my own startup. So I started to do that. And, um, basically as a lot of entrepreneurs can be, I was a little bit ahead of the market. I was trying to create a, a product for credit card companies to place, um, discounts and, and uh, promotions on credit cards, similar mm -hmm. to what you see now with mm -hmm. the various uh, benefits and rewards oh, yeah. that you get on, on Amex. Yeah. But this is back in 2006 and, and uh, they didn't really grasp what I was, uh, maybe I wasn't selling it well enough, but mm -hmm. it, uh, it didn't, it didn't, it didn't take off. I had basically then had a group of investors around me and, and uh, one of which brought me in to meet uh, my initial partner, Nick McShane, who, who started Progress Partners about five years before I joined. So this is back in 2007. And uh, I would say, you know, within a month, I was convinced that this was the path for my career. And uh, so wound, wound down the, the startup efforts and uh, 
put on my um, banking hat and mm-hmm. I've been there ever since. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and there's more to it than just the banking, of course, yeah. with the investing side too. But uh, that's, what, that, that's what caused that transition. Interesting. So, I mean, in a lot of ways, as you've, you say, you've shifted into a banking hat, but it's really, you've shifted into a, a, a banking hat with still a focus on early stage companies that you sure. and like not only, you know, analyze and, and, um, when appropriate, like, uh, invest dollars and resources in, yeah. um, but yeah. really kind of work as an active agent over time. Like, it, like it, it seems that you're very, you know, from the, in the time I've gotten to know you, like you're very, um, in, in a bit of an analyst capacity, you're very, um, you know, you, you seem to keep a, a track on uh, your, uh, on where the puck's going. Yeah. Um, yeah. So maybe, so speak, so speak a bit how you, how like as in, as, as officially like a, a banker in the space, um, you're able to still scratch your entrepreneurial itches and how, and, and talk a bit about how you go through yeah. the process of evaluating and, and advising and, and helping grow these, these early stage companies that you, that you, you know, partner with. Yeah. So I'll go back with a little bit of history and then, and then, and then talk about what we do today. Um, so we, Nick and I, and this is, this is, this is, you know, abridged version here, but essentially once he and I started working together, um, we built, we shortly thereafter did two things. One, reorganized the business um, on the banking side, um, and this was also coinciding with the the recession that we hit in two thousand eight. And uh, pared down the business, laid off a bunch of people again, and uh, pared down the business to basically three of us. And we moved into the CIC where you and I first met. That's right. Back in 2009. But I, I joined there in 2007. So yeah. uh, we, we, we had started to, to work together and started to think about what we could be. That got reorganized uh, in the downturn. At the same time, he, Nick, and I had the opportunity to meet a lot of different people through our banking work. This is helping companies raise capital, you know, Series C, Series D rounds, um, and then it eventually turned into doing M&A work, sell-side M&A and, and buy-side M&A. But back in the early days, after we were successful with some of our clients, many came back to say, I'm going off to my next venture, or we got introduced to someone else from a former client, right, through a referral saying, hey, I'm too early stage for you guys to work in a banking relationship, but I am trying to go raise money to launch this next business. And we realized there was a, a proprietary deal flow that was coming through our sure. banking work. Yeah. So in 2008, we actually, through our own means, um, Nick and I brought in you know, a number of investors with us investing into specific companies. And that is what formed Progress Ventures. So we, we started investing back in 2008 after six companies, uh, we realized it had to be a little bit more formalized. So rather than doing single purpose vehicles, right, essentially pooling funds to invest into a company, we, we pulled together investor interest to create a fund and then started investing into companies out of that fund. So we would have a fund model to, to build the, the ventures business up after that. So fast forward then, you know, now we're 12 years in on Progress Ventures and um, we invest into 21 companies. And they are all, you know, our, our approach today and roughly the same across the life of the funds uh, that we've been investing are, you know, series A companies, you know, so first real institutional money in um, 
So a lot of companies we've invested in, they have seed investors, they have angel investors, um, <clears throat> they have some revenue traction, but they've, in and around the, the world in which we operate, my background in media and online you know, media, digital media, Nick has a very similar background. Our investing was all in that world, right? Mm-hmm. Advertising, marketing, and media tech, B2B companies, and the the work that we did and in, in, in the banking piece helped to fuel those, the, the, the connection to the, the access to those companies. And then the investing was in companies that we understood because we knew the industry that they were growing into. Right. We understood where they were going and how we could help them. Like you said, yeah. how do we steer these companies, right? How do we influence these companies? We do it because not because we're, we're better at management than they are, or because we're, you know, better at, at, you know, financial modeling than they are. It's because we know where they're going. You've been there before. Well, one, we've been there before, but two, the companies that they're trying to sell their service or product, you know, platform to is a company that we know well. That you've done business with. Because we've done business with the banking side, right? So we we can help accelerate the growth of those companies based on the network that we can leverage. So we've... we've So it creates economies of scale for them. They don't have to invest as much resources in building those bridges. You already have them. And for us, if we we help, you know, build a pipeline of, you know, two, three, four million dollars of revenue for that early stage company after we invest, that helps to protect our investment. Yeah, it's a nice, it's a, it's a nice, healthy, it's that you're making, you're making healthy bets in companies with a hedge to like give you know with with the hedge that is a it's at least one if not multiple lanes of um you know partnership and yes. deal flow that you can bring them yes and coming from actually hadn't heard that this is why it's this i love this podcast format even with two two dudes who have known each other for a bit but like hearing how you started like more mature, like series C ish, like buy side, sell side and how that like established role helped then bring in and, and those successful entrepreneurs you helped then led you into early stage growth. And then it all comes full circle, yeah, right? Yeah. Okay, cool. And now as you're helping the early stage growth, it's not so much that you maybe know where the puck is going specific to their business better than their founder. But what you do know is, Hey, if you're in the media or advertising space, you're going to have to do business with folks on over here on the supply side. You're going to, and you're going to have to, this is how you have to work mm-hmm. with agencies on the demand side. We know who you need to work with. We know who like company person types of deal you need to get done. We know how you can have a very efficient, mm-hmm. worthwhile relationship for both sides. Mm-hmm. And for the folks that you're connected with. Yep. And then I, someone said to me a meeting I had earlier today, like, you know, like, the best thing you can deal in is trust. Yeah. And you deal in trust and like you're, you're trusting, you know, you're, you're trusting that, um, you know, the partners you take on are, are sharing everything with you. Yeah. The management teams and the management teams are trusting you. And what are they trusting you? They're trusting you that great. When Sam is not only investing in us, but he's like, he's investing his network in us. And you know, that the network you're going to introduce to them, they're like, it's like, all right, box is checked. It's coming through Sam. It's going to come very efficiently. It's going to be worth my while. Yeah. Cool. Let's get down to brass tacks. Let's be yeah. efficient. Time is precious. We yeah. all got the next thing to work on. Yeah. So, um, that's really, um, I, I just, appre- I appreciate you kind of going through that level of detail. Cause I think it's valuable for people to hear, like, this is actually how the, the, the banking side, yeah. quote unquote side of things, you know, really works. Well, and how yeah. it helps with the adventure side. Yeah. Yeah. And how the, it helps with the venture side. Exactly. The, um, well, and, and I did you know, six, six times, seven times out of ten, um, 
the management teams we're dealing with know exactly the companies that we're talking about. Right. They maybe even have a dialogue going with them. But they have their plan modeled out. Yeah. Well, and they, yeah. they may already be talking to them, but typically speaking, they're at a more junior level. Sure. So then we can come in at a, at a higher level, at a more executive level to say, this is a company you should be paying attention to. Yes, it's small. Yes, it's a yeah. startup. But here's why it's important to you. Yeah. You know what might help in just like, just to crystallize this even more, because I love this like, like thought path we're on. Yeah. What's a good example in the last like, you know, several years of like a company that you were invested in early and that you kind of helped through to, uh, an, you know, an acquisition, like an exit, um, or, or, or just, or a company that's currently in market right now that is just actively going like, like a true optic or something that, that, and just the types of those channel partnerships where like you've helped execute those relationships so they can get onto the next visionary product endeavor that they need to go and sell. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I, I, uh, thinking back to some of our earlier investments, Localytics here in Boston, you know, uh, an introduction that I worked on helped build their technology into uh, iHeartRadio and the app, you know, and so they were a, a key <laughs> technology partner to them. Um, and there were any countless number of other larger media companies and, and connections that we made to help them on their way. Um, more recently, you know, companies like Iris TV or True Optic in our portfolio, uh, I would say that's you know making connections to the likes of Oracle. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, actually, one of the introductions that I made now uh, that that member from Oracle has moved over to work at, at True Optic. Uh, oh, wow. So, uh, so uh, it, it's uh, sorry, Iris TV, and oh, then okay. um, and then with True Optic, uh, a lot of the team at Comcast uh, that we've gotten to know over the years, we had one person from there that's moved over to the True Optic team. Um, we, we, we've made introductions and we've, in a way, I think given a sort of stamp of approval to some of the larger players in the market who then have a, a great appreciation for the kinds of companies that we invest in, the people that we invest in. And then, yeah, it's resulted in, in I think, some great either you know, new team members, uh, certainly some business development that takes place. Um, the... Uh, you know, on the exit side, we've, we've exited several companies now from the portfolio. Um, Simplify was to a private equity company and um, Integral Ad Science was to a private equity company, yeah. to Vista. Um, and uh, and then Massive Interactive was to a company called Delta Tray. And uh, Massive, well, Delta Tray is, is backed by Bruin Sports Capital. We got to know that team relatively well. Um, we became a, a stamp of sort of approval that I think was helpful to the Delta Trade team and to the to the Bruin Sports Capital team uh, in massive exit. Um, that you know we didn't initiate the the connection there, um, but we helped to solidify it. And uh, you know, and those were all exits that were huge to mm-hmm. the success of the fund so far. And, and we've had other exits as well, but those are, those are definitely the big ones. Cool. I want to double click on one of those you mentioned. Just be, it's the one I have the most familiarity with, so I can be a little more confident with maybe some even like a follow up or two. But Iris.tv. Yeah. Like I've, I've spent some time over the years like advising those guys. I love like um, Richie and Field are, are wonderful people, and and they're the whole team over there. Um, so they're. You know, as I as I see it, and it's it's been maybe six months since I've like looked super closely at the business. Um, but you know, per, AI, you know, personalization for publishers. Yeah. So like, per, you know, and and so like, you have a publisher, 
um, you know, meeting your media company specifically or publisher with a you know video, big video catalog. And, you know, Iris comes in and in a similar way that Facebook will customize your Facebook newsfeed of the videos you are served on an individual level. Uh, Iris.tv is sort of like that type of AI engine for publishers. So on your own and operated site, when people land on your site, they land on or they land on a video, video one they chose, video two through infinity. Iris chooses what that is yep. and they, they yep. find, they you know, measuring in, in through, you know, data and analytics, they're finding out like, when are the appropriate times you might be able to monetize, slide in ads, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, so it seems like I've, I've, I've probably got it, it, it at a high level. That's my understanding of the business. Yeah. At, at a macro level, publishers are mm-hmm. fa- are not in the best of economic times, right? Mm-hmm. So the model for Iris to me is always is interesting and tricky right now because of the economics of it. So like, I'm just curious, like if we could geek out in the weeds for a second and, and maybe we'll drop a few listeners here and maybe a few will be like leaning in. Um, how do you feel like, like what, what's your advice to a company like iris.tv, for example? And like, do they, do they stay and re- you know, stay the course and do they continue like just scaling and selling or like, you know, with like, a squeezing um, amount of funds that may be able to invest in their product on the, on the sell side, on the publisher side, mm-hmm. how do they like direct their product vis-a-vis brand demand side yeah. and, and sort of navigate the seas because the seas are likely to get a little more, you know, things are likely to get a little more dim before they get a little better mm-hmm. um, economically speaking. Yeah. So, so yeah, I mean, any, any thoughts there? And like, obviously like we need to keep things to what we can talk about publicly, but like that's, they just a company right now that sells to publishers yeah. is in a bit of a pickle. Yeah, no, I, I would <laughs> I definitely say if for any entrepreneur listening to this, if you're thinking about creating a platform to sell to publishers, I would say, think again. <laughs> yep. um, it, it, I mean, we were actually actively in conversations with several um, businesses in our investment pipeline and, and for progress ventures and, that is um, a key consideration. You cannot build a business on publisher revenue alone because they just, they they are, they're getting squeezed. And so uh, it's been, you know, it's not our guidance alone. We've, they've certainly received our encouragement, but um, you know, Field and and Richie and Bill, um, they've all, the whole team there, they've all been thinking about what do we do to, to, augment our existing offering to do more to, to sure. and to grab different um, revenue streams and they've they've been moving into the realm of, of advertising and ultimately how they can essentially use the same uh, personalization engine uh, algorithms to personalize the advertising sure um, so there's there's yeah. they're in the midst of, of launching a couple of key partnerships in in and around this they launched with media math uh, and they have several others that I can't name off the top of my head but I'd say that that it absolutely is a huge consideration and I think advertisers are always concerned about context mm-hmm. they know context better than anybody mm-hmm. um, uh, you know you have platforms like a grape shot or um, or others but yeah. that, I, I, that do a lot around um, text and other forms of contextualization. I think these guys go a lot deeper. And I think they finally, you know, were able to stick their, their nose uh, above water to get a little bit of breath of fresh air and take a look at what they could really do, what they built. And, and I think they're on an interesting path. Um, cool. You know, I'd say 
you, know, you asked a question about you know companies to keep an eye out for. I would say Iris is at an inflection point, and it'll be interesting to see what they do. Yeah. But I think that there's an opportunity for them to really scale their revenue and and ultimately provide a, a pretty um, differentiated product. Yeah. Um, so uh, it's it's a matter of time, but that's just getting started right now. Yeah. And I and I couldn't agree. Like I'm very I'm long on on Iris. The like to to put it really simply, like the IBM Watson team turns to Iris. Yeah. To actually have an AI engine that can can bring can you know contextualized um, at a at an individual level sort of recommendations to humans, yeah. um, which is like what you would think based on all the press over the years, like IBM Watson can do. But like when you have like an IBM turning to Iris, like you know that the you know what's under the hood is um, rather impressive, mm-hmm. and in the day and age where all brands are publishers or could be, and many brands act very strongly as publishers, and they're more flush with cash, although they they have to be analytics minded. It does seem to me that Iris attempting to direct at certain groups of publishers, maybe DTC brands that are like really taking owned and operated approaches, taking lots of things in house. Um, thinking about storytelling, right? Yeah. Thinking of storytelling and measuring that storytelling and tie it to their, um, their commerce businesses. Um, I actually see, I I see actually very green pastures with not even necessarily a pivot in the, in what the product is, but really in just who the the customer is, which is just the brands. Um, and it's, it's, so it's actually, it's actually not too late. It's the perfect time to have, a solution. So if you're if you are listening and you have a solution that you think is valuable to publishers, stop, take a time out <laughs> and consider if it might be valuable to brands that act as publishers yeah. in this in, in 2019, as many do. And then if the answer to that is yes, keep on going. Yeah. Um, cool. Um, let's talk a little bit about where you see um, how, like how do things feel to you right now in Boston? Um at a micro level and then at a macro like global economy level do, do you i mentioned i alluded to this earlier in the conversation I, i'm catching back to this train of thought any trends any any analogous behaviors in market that you're noticing when we've had downturns around 2000 2008 like are you seeing any patterns or things do we need to batten down the hatches are there certain um you know industries that are hot right now or, or were hot like like crypto that you're not long on other industries that you're like that are recession proof like what are some of like the general micro macro trends boston globally that 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 you're sensing right now based on the the decades that you've you've spent in this world that's a good question um i don't know boston well so Boston has, I think, produced a great set of startups that have moved into great public companies. Um, and I, of the more recent, uh, you know, grads into that, you know, call it car gurus, um, call it uh, log me in, mm-hmm. um, TripAdvisor. There, there, are other, there are others around, um, but I mean, those are sort of the big, big names. I mean, we had Constant Contact; they got uh, they got acquired. Um, there, there's good businesses here that have shown the ability to really scale and, and exit nicely. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think we were recently ranked, uh, third, uh, in, in the, in the country for, for venture. Um, so, you know, where is Boston? I think we're in a good spot. I think we become more communal. I'd say the trends that I've seen is that, um, 
We're moving more to a collaborative venture environment, which is good. I want to see more co-investment. I want to see more, um, you know, banding together to, to build these businesses up. I think Boston has come from a place of uh, ivory towers and, and uh, you know, winning deals as a sole venture fund, as opposed to, I think, strength in numbers. Sure. Um, I love that. Yeah, I love where you're coming with that. I, I just I couldn't agree more. And then also in a down, like if the more alignment there is, then the more people you all have on the same page helping keeping and lifting up and propelling forward and it's it's what's good for the goose is good for the gander yeah 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 so i mean it's it's not exactly you know what industry is you know going to be hot or listen the 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 voice tech is is an area that's an interest to us yeah you mentioned audio tech in the questions which i would have followed up with if you didn't answer here which is very intriguing to me as well um so outside of you know the venture or sort of banking world that we're in, I'd say from a from a from an operational side, I think that fundamentally audio tech, voice computing, um, all things tied to audio are going to be I think the next big wave of yeah. of of how we interact with everything in our lives. Sure, uh, I, I don't want to turn this into. Um, too much of a sci-fi film, but I, I do think there are conveniences and things sure. that will happen. If, even just thinking about how distracted we are in cars when we are taking our eyes off the road. And I think there are things that can be done even better than they are to done today yeah. through voice. Right? Much people are how public it really is, but they're, they're leasing big pieces of space. And if and Amazon's one, growing in Boston, easy, easy way to t- see if a company's growing is to go look at the jobs they're hiring and where and Amazon and Spotify are hiring insane amounts of people right now, Spotify in particular, because they have offices that, that haven't even opened yet yep. downtown. Yep. But yeah, so which is really interesting. So when you think about the audio tech ecosystem yep. that naturally manifests adjacent to yep. Spotify and Amazon, it's just like it's Boston's uniquely suited, obviously, yep. from a talent standpoint. Yep. But then you have those behemoths here yep. that are the platforms. Yep. And it's it's a really unique place to be over the next decade. Yeah. And this goes a little bit to the sort of macro from micro. But, uh, you know, you look at MIT launching a whole college uh, sure. or center around AI yeah. uh, with a huge amount of funding to do that. Um, there's going to be a lot more AI going on around here. I think we will be an AI hub. Uh, I certainly know that that's on MIT's you know, target list. So, uh, and then you have venture funds who are going deep into that, um, underscore glass wing. They all are very focused on AI and, and our new, you know, our, our, our focus on venture has been in and around data, data management, AI, ML, um, automation and, uh, everything that has to do with, with how you handle data, right? Now that you have the data, what are you doing with it? How do you, leverage it and and that's a key piece where ai definitely will fit into that um hyperplane's another one um here in boston another great fund that's doing a lot around ai um so i'd say that's a it's a boston trend uh i think it's a macro trend um so i know that's going to be big um over the next three or four years and listen the the, la- the first investments we made were in 2008 9 and 10 and that was a big downturn and a lot of companies who were funded back then have turned into behemoths Mm-hmm. today. So I think, you know, listen, a recession hurts, a downturn hurts, but it also is interesting um, path to to the next big things. So cool. uh, I'm excited to see what happens and, and how we move into the next realm of, of uh, innovation. Um, you know, so it's silver lining of a downturn. Great. Last question. What do you feel like is a problem that you'd like 
us to address in the next 10, 20 years so that sure. we're leaving a, a better planet behind us for our children. Sure, sure. Um, I, uh, it, it's not an area that I focus on from a professional standpoint, but um, going back to my you know, college education and what drove me out to the West Coast and being quite excited about all sorts of outdoor pursuits, um, climate change is just killer. Mm-hmm. It is crushing everything that I think is the natural beauty of the world that we need to focus on. We need to find a solution to, no question. Yeah. And I don't have the answers. I'm not the one who's going to be able to deliver those answers. Yeah. Um, but I am a um, eager participant in whatever we can do to change that. Yeah. Great. Appreciate you sharing that. We, uh, we share that between progress and fabric. Uh, recently we took on um, a pro bono, some pro bono work with Polar Bears International which do a ton of awareness for climate change. Mm-hmm. Um, and from and we always like to have a little bit of uh, attention spent towards important causes and really climate change, um, you, you really can, can, can start most all conversations with that. So sure. um, thanks for sharing that. And thanks for sharing all this time. Thank, yeah. Thanks for spending the time. Sorry. Um, sorry, we have to, to cut it now. I could jam with you for another hour. Sure. But, no, well, we'll have to yeah. talk some more. I, yeah. One last yeah. thing, actually, yeah. I'll throw in there. Yeah. It's Go another it. another yeah. on the on the uh, meta thing. Uh, I was blown away by a sixty minutes um, episode, an article on plastic. Oh. And so that's the only other thing. And it kind of ties into climate change, certainly producing plastic. 100% does. Yeah. And, uh, but, but really more so, like we all can make a big difference if we think about single-use plastic and, and basically removing it from our lives. It's so fitting you bring that up. I'm in the middle of a podcast right now I'm listening to, the CMO podcast, with the CMO of Swell. Yeah. And they are the, the whole purpose of Swell is to uh, at least eradicate single-use plastic. Now, here's the reality, and this is a fact I learned from the podcast that I'm listening to right now. 50% of our plastic use is very difficult to eradicate. Yeah. 50, but the other 50% is. Yeah. And that's the 50% where like, I'm holding it right now, folks. Only Sam can see it, my swell bottle. Yeah. It's the second one I've owned in a couple of years. Uh, but that's really interesting to me. And, I, and from listening to the swell podcast and hearing you say this, I'll just say, um, you know, I, I do feel, and you're an advertising guy, you'll appreciate this. I think the future of brand storytelling, whether it's a business to business company, but in particular B2C, yeah. um, can and should be, hey, while we're interrupting your video viewing experience, like this message from Polar Bears International is brought to you by TripAdvisor. Yeah. Like, yeah. But, but we're but this very important message about how you can do something to help public service announcements. Like, right? yeah, yeah, but like ads becoming public service announcements. What's old is new. Uh, more and more, I think my like I, I feel and you see a little bit of it. I think yeah. more of that's coming. I think a wave of more companies of investing in. Hey, we're going to interrupt people in the attention economy. Yep. It's going to be perfect purpose driven ads. Yep. And it's almost going to be like, hey, this is brought to you by Patagonia. But here's the really important message. And obviously I bring up Patagonia because they're pro- perhaps the best yeah. you know, brand out there and, and really living yeah, this, conscious. this yeah. e- conscious ethos. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, thanks for sharing that too. And, and I'll, have to, I'll have to share with you the, this podcast. Please this, do. CMO Swall, he's only been there a few months. Sounds like the right fit for the job. Um, and from listening to it, my, I, was, I was halfway through, I, I texted to my partner, Jason Damata, uh, who I recently talked to on the pod. And I was like, 
because he's, I mean, if you go, if you're in Venice and you visit Fabric Media folks, do not show up with a plastic bag. Jason will send you back to the store to give the plastic bag back. Yeah. He's like, I, like we're not contributing to this. Yeah. Um, and I said to him, like, I sent him the podcast, man, we should just hit up Swell. Yeah. Let's see how we can help them out. Like, and that's, yeah. and I think it, it, it's so being purpose driven um, and, and having the, the sort of business acumen and understanding the advertising and monetization yeah. dynamics of the space. Yep. That's why I think, you know, guys like you and I and our networks have, um, you know, an opportunity to, and, 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 and kind of, you know, should hold ourselves accountable to like investing some time in that over the years. So cool. Like it, they bring yeah. opportunities to me and I'll bring opportunities to you where we can help maybe, uh, uh make, you know, at least k- keep some level of, uh, the carbon footprint that's destroying our planet, uh, a little less. So yeah. we have, we have a fighting chance of keeping this beautiful earth, um, healthy for generations to come. Yeah, absolutely. Thank yeah. you for your time. Thank you for your time, Sam. Yeah. This has been a pleasure. Awesome. We should have brought two beers in here. I know. Yeah. I need more. <laughs> All right. Cheers, Boston.